The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. For the next four weeks in July, leading up to the retreat, I'll be preaching from this book of Ruth. It's a short book, only four chapters long, and so we're basically going to look at one chapter every week. I think for many Christians, Ruth is a favorite book or one of the favorites. Um, in fact, it's one of my personal favorite books in the Bible because at a very critical moment in my life when I was in medical school, that book really ministered to me in a very deep way. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to work that testimony into the preaching series. And maybe I will share it, maybe I won't. I'm not sure. But it, it really, God led me to this book of Ruth at a very important point in my life. And it really spoke so powerfully to me about what God is calling me to do. Um, it's not surprising that it's a favorite book for so many because there's so much to like about the book. It's a, it's a well-told story that contains all kinds of very dramatic ele- elements from tragic deaths, uh, testing of family loyalties, the search for love. Uh, there's even this electric night at the threshing floor of Boaz filled with sexual tension. Some of you are going, whoa, wait a minute here. You're going to go home and read the book of Ruth. That's good if you do that because you're like, I don't remember any sexual tension like that, but it's because you don't know the Hebrew, okay? We'll get there and we'll unpack that a bit and see all the sexual innuendo that's captured in chapter 3, okay? Um, The title of our study is A Love Story. And the obvious reference for this title would be the love that develops between Boaz and Ruth. But as we'll see, the true love story that's found in this book of Ruth is not so much between Boaz and Ruth as much as it is between God and his people. Uh, After his resurrection, Jesus was walking with two of his disciples on this road to the city of Emmaus when he said to to them in Luke chapter 24, Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, what Jesus was saying was, everything in the Bible, in the Old Testament, ultimately was pointing to me. And so that's going to be part of our journey through this book of Ruth as well, is to see how this Old Testament story that happened over a thousand years before Jesus was born was actually pointing ahead to Christ himself, okay? Let's go ahead and take a look at chapter 1 then together. It's a bit of a longer passage, and so just follow with me here. But we're going to read Ruth 1 and then look at what we can learn from it. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Machlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. 
With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Let's pray. God, open our eyes to see the wonders of your truth. And in a story that happened so long ago to a people that at so many levels, culturally, historically, we can't even relate with, open our eyes to see how you are always the same, that you never change. And grant us the wisdom to understand as you worked and acted in their lives, how you are at work in our lives as well. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. The events recorded in the book of Ruth, we're told in the very first verse of the book, take place in, quote, the days of the judges. This is the same time period of Gideon whom I preached about about a month ago. If you remember from that message, the Israelites were under the leadership of Moses and then Joshua for many years, the very able, capable, good leadership of these godly men. But after Joshua died, the Israelites were led by a series of flawed leaders known as the Judges. In Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So two things are highlighted about this time period. is that there was no king, there was no leadership. There was no earthly leader to really provide some sense of, of leadership to the people of God. And as a result of that, it was chaos. Everyone basically did whatever they wanted. These were dark days in Israel. They didn't obey God who commanded them to completely destroy the other pagan nations around them because they were so entrenched 
in sinful living. God said, destroy these people, but Israel fell short of that full obedience. And so rather than destroying them, they let these people live. And as a result of that, these neighboring nations did two things. They either led the Israelites into idolatry and rebellion against God, or they attacked the Israelites, killing them, trying to wipe them out. There were clearly times in Israel's history when it was very obvious that God was with his people. And this was not one of them. I think if you lived in the days of the judges, there would have been a lot of doubt in your heart as to the reality of God. Remember how Gideon responded when God said, I will be with you. In Judges chapter 6, verse 13, it said, But sir, Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. In other words, Gideon said, If God is with us, then why is all of this happening to us? Why is everything so chaotic in our times? Those stories that we heard from our fathers and our grandfathers, they seem like a bunch of fairy tales in our day. Because God seems absent in our time. These are the days in which the story of Ruth takes place. What I want to do is I want to sort of first look at the events of chapter 1 through the perspective of Naomi. And then secondly, I want to look at the perspective of Ruth, her daughter-in-law. And then I want to close out the message by looking at how their perspectives affected the decisions, the choices that they made in their lives. So first, Naomi. To add to this already chaotic nature of those days, we're told that a famine hit the land. There's not enough food to even eat anymore. There is an irony here because the word Bethlehem, or in Hebrew it's Beit Lahem, it literally means house of bread. And so you can see that there's some humor here. Basically, what the writer of Ruth is saying is, in this house of bread, there was no bread. And so these people had nothing to eat. And so this Jewish family, under the leadership of this man named Elimelech, with his wife Naomi and their two sons, make the difficult decision of leaving Israel and emigrating to a neighboring nation known as Moab. Now, Historians all point out what a weird choice this was. Because Moab had made themselves to be an enemy of God. So of all the places that Elimelech could have taken his family, this big question mark emerges. Why Moab? Of all places, why did you choose that place? In Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 3 to 4, it says, No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam, son of Beor, to pronounce a curse on you. In other words, when the Israelites were coming out of slavery in Egypt and wandering in the wilderness, in their moment of need and suffering in the desert, the Moabites came against them, and they harassed them. And then there was this guy named Balak, the king of Moab in a previous time, and he hired this man named Balaam, a pagan prophet, to rain curses, pray curses 
down on Israel. And so God cursed the Moabites. He said, you're not even permitted into the assembly of God's people. They worship. In light of this, it's really a wonder why Elimelech chose Moab as the place to settle. We're not really told why, but it must have been a difficult decision. It's hard to see, though, how God could have been happy with the choice that Elimelech and Naomi made. We're not sure when in this 10 years of settling into Moab, but sometime in this living abroad, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi as a widow. Despite God's command for the Israelites not to intermarry with other nations, Naomi's two sons take for themselves Moabite women. After all, what choice did they have? There's no Jewish women where they are, and so the only thing they can do is to marry these foreigners. And then these two sons also die before they can leave any grandchildren to Naomi. They die childless. Now, before we go any further, I want to just pause for a moment and have us think about what a tragic life Naomi lived. Living in a time of famine, they don't even have enough food to eat. And so they make the desperate decision to leave Israel in order to find just enough to eat to survive. They become foreigners in a distant land. Now, in this distant country, she not only loses her husband, but she has to witness the death of her two sons as well before they could even give her any grandchildren. Now, one of the things that I want to say, even from what we have heard so far, is this. I think there is a very strong temptation a natural instinct we all have to try to solve this like it's a mystery. What I mean is, what's going on here with this tragedy? Or to bring a finer point to it, who is to blame? Who is to blame here? Um, And it's tempting to want to think that everything that transpired in this family was a result of God's punishment for the poor choices that this family made. Maybe Elimelech died because he brought his family to Moab. And maybe the two sons died because they married foreign women. It's it's a very tempting logic, isn't it, to want to go there. But what's interesting to me is the Bible itself does not explicitly assign this kind of blame. And I think I would argue that, that trying to explain stories that we find in the Bible like this by simply assigning blame and saying cause and effect, crime and punishment, is too simplistic. I think there is no doubt that Elimelech and Naomi made some pretty unwise choices, maybe even sinful choices for their family. But if life is really about always getting what we deserve, then the truth is, I don't think any of us would be around, would we? The truth is, God doesn't always give us what we deserve. And I think it's too simplistic a theology simply to say, every time something bad happens in my life, I have to connect it to something bad I've done. 
So what is going on here? Well, Naomi receives news that the famine is over in Bethlehem. And so after being gone for a decade, she prepares to go back in her state of mourning to her hometown of Bethlehem. And her two daughters-in-law are prepared to return with her. But she actually pushes them away, telling them, go back to your own mother's family where you can find new husbands for yourselves and start a new life. But they push back on Naomi and insist, no, we will go back to your home country with you. Exasperated, Naomi reveals what she believes deep down in her heart about her situation. Because in verse 13, she says, It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. What she's basically telling her daughters-in-law is, if you want a happy life, stay away from me. I'm like poison. God is against me. He is punishing me. I am living under the cloud of his curse. And once Naomi arrives in Bethlehem, she echoes the same belief to her friends in Bethlehem in verses 20 to 21. Don't call me Naomi, which means sweet. She told them, call me Mara, which means in Hebrew, bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. You know what? I think Naomi is falling into the same trap that many of us fall into. And it basically is like this. When circumstances are good in my life, it means God is good to me. But when tragedy hits, it means God is against me. The theology of little children looks something like this. My parents' love for me is directly proportional to the amount of candy that they let me eat, right? It's kind of the way little children think, right? Candy, love. No candy, hate, right? As adults, we'd love to believe that we become more sophisticated than this, don't we? But the truth is, I think, our theology is often not all that different from young children. Dean Ulrich writes, We judge God's love and faithfulness by how many of our desires have been met. When our desires do not materialize, our words are telling. Angry, accusing words reveal the idols of our heart. So do selfish prayers couched in pious and deferential language. Too often, it is not God's will that we want but our will made possible by God. What a powerful sentence. Let me read that again. Too often it is not God's will that we want, but our will made possible by God. Isn't that so true? As Christians, we talk all the time about knowing God's will, finding God's will. And we make it seem like the biggest challenge in figuring out God's will for our life is knowledge. If I only knew what God wanted, I could live a meaningful life. But I think the truth is we give ourselves way too much credit if we assume that we want the same things for our life that God wants for us. 
Are we really sure we want God's will for our lives? Because our own desire for our lives often goes no further than our constant comfort and happiness. Isn't that true? That's our will for ourselves, is the path of least resistance, the greatest happiness, the most shortcuts to the destination. But in order for God to accomplish His will, His desire in our life, which is to make us more like Jesus, God often allows difficulties and pain to come into our lives, like He did for Naomi. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to 18, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Paul is not making light of human suffering. In fact, if you know his biography, you know the immense suffering he went to in his life. When he talks about these light and momentary troubles, he's talking about putting that suffering in perspective to the greater good that God is accomplishing in us, the eternal perspective. And I want to ask you that this morning. Do you have a faith like that? that enables you to trust that God has a higher purpose, even when he allows suffering into your life. It's interesting to me that Naomi believed in the general goodness of God as a theological truth. We know this because he wills, she wills that goodness for her daughters-in-law. She blesses them and says, may God be good to you when you go back to your home villages. So Naomi still believes that God is good in general. But here's the thing. There is a world of difference from being able to believe that God is good in general and God is good to me. God is good in my life. And that was what Naomi could not believe about God. Maybe he is good to some people, the ones who deserve it, or whatever, but he is not good to me. He has turned against me. He has become my enemy. I don't want to diminish the very real and deep pain that Naomi experienced in her life. In fact, the truth is, most of us will never go through the kind of tragedy Naomi suffered. But the deeper tragedy is that her pain blinded her from seeing the God that is not against her, but who is still working in her life in ways that she was either unwilling or unable to recognize or acknowledge. If you look at verses 20 to 21, it says, Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. I wonder how Ruth felt hearing Naomi say that. Really? You came back to Bethlehem with nothing? Maybe she thought, what am I, chopped liver? You know? Here is the thing. Consumed by self-pity and a sense of hopelessness, Naomi claimed to have returned to Bethlehem empty-handed. 
She says, I came back with nothing. Nothing. God took everything from me. I am bankrupt. But what she could not realize is that in the persistent love of her daughter-in-law, Ruth, God had already set into motion the wheels of the greatest work he was about to do in Naomi's life. She just couldn't see it in that moment. She was blinded by her pain, her suffering. And so she had no faith to believe that there was anything left in her story. But God was setting the stage for doing something utterly amazing in Naomi's life. Well, that's Naomi's perspective. Call me Mara, for the Lord has afflicted me. Let's look at Ruth for a minute here. It's a highly emotional scene with a lot of open sobbing and tears and hugs. And at Naomi's insistence, Orpah finally relents and kisses her mother-in-law for one last time and turns around and walks away, heading back to her home village to start a new life, look for a new husband. But Ruth is different. She refuses to leave Naomi's side. And so Naomi makes one last effort to send her away. Verse 15, Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth's resolve is unshakable. Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. Do Ruth's words have a familiar ring to them? They ought to because they sound very similar to what? Wedding vows, yes, wedding vows. It's because both the wedding vows that we use today and these words of Ruth have their origin in what is known as ancient covenant language. It is the promise of one party to another that I will never leave you till death do us part. And Ruth is making it very clear that this is not just about family loyalty. She's saying, your God will be my God. There is a very obvious contrast being made between Orpah and Ruth. When Naomi comments on Orpah leaving, she says, not only is Orpah going back to her home village, but she is going back to her old gods. What we see here in these words is Ruth making a declaration of faith that she will not return to her old gods in Moab, but she has made a commitment not only to Naomi, but to follow Naomi's God, the God of Israel. It is out of that faith that Ruth commits herself to her mother-in-law. Now, when we compare Naomi with Ruth, what we see is how big an impact our faith has 
on the decisions we make in our life. Naomi's faith took a beating from all of the tragedies she had suffered. And so from this shrinking or maybe even almost non-existent faith, it was reflected in the way that she pressured her daughters-in-law to go back to their home where they came from. Now let me say this. From a purely human perspective, this actually seems like a pretty pragmatic, even compassionate thing to do, right? Because here are these two young women who are now widows, They have no future. In those days, if you were a widow in those ancient times, you had no life. You had nothing. Your husband was everything to you. And so it seemed like an act of compassion for Naomi to say, go back to your home country, your home village, and find new husbands and start new families. But in doing this, Naomi also knew that she was sending these women, her daughters, back to their old gods. Naomi admits this herself in Ruth 1.15 when she says, Look, Naomi said, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. And then she has the gall to say, go back with her. You see, Orpah is going back to her old pagan gods on Naomi's insistence, on her urging. And I think the truth is, I think Naomi must have justified her decision with the thought that at least maybe they can find some happiness in this miserable life that they've known by finding a new husband. And so Naomi even pressures Ruth relentlessly, follow your sister-in-law, go with her understanding full well what this would have meant for their faith. Now, what am I saying about this? What is the point that I'm trying to make here? It's this. Without faith, our decisions are reduced to a short-sighted and fatal pragmatism. In other words, without faith, there is no higher purpose, no eternal perspective. It is only about survival instinct. It's about this basic sense of, let me just try to secure some modicum of happiness in my life because the truth is life stinks and it's miserable. It's all misery. It's all brokenness. And you just got to deal with the cards that you've been dealt in life. And so Naomi's approach to life becomes that pragmatic. Go back to your gods, whoever they are, and go worship them again. Because maybe in doing so, You might find a husband, and maybe you'll have kids, and maybe you just might find happiness. What I'm saying is is this. We'll never discover the life that God has planned for us when our decisions are driven by this kind of short-sighted mentality, faithless mentality. And we don't really see how stark this is until we compare it with Ruth's decision made as a result of her faith in God. Ruth knew full well the implications of returning to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. She deliberately chooses to become a foreigner in a land that was openly hostile to her people. 
as Naomi even tried to warn her, if you come with me to Bethlehem, you will very likely die a childless widow because no Jewish man is going to want you. You're a Gentile woman once married. You're damaged goods. Your people have a curse on you. As a young woman, you can imagine how painful a prospect this must have been to Ruth, weighing the cost of the decision that she made that day to follow Naomi back home. From a purely human perspective, it made no logical sense for Ruth to travel to Israel with her mother-in-law. But here's the thing. All of that was secondary in Ruth's mind to the most important factor in her decision-making, which was, I will put my trust in God. If Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God, then that is where I want to be. I want to be with his people. I want to be in that promised land. In chapter 2, if you think I'm overstating Ruth's faith, in chapter 2, Boaz affirms that it was ultimately Ruth's faith and trust in God that caused her to go to Bethlehem and not her love for her mother-in-law per se. In chapter 2, verse 12, it says, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You came to Bethlehem because you sought the refuge of the one true God who could take care of you in your distress and in your loss. At the same time, I think it's important to note that Ruth's decision was one that demonstrated selfless and sacrificial love for her mother-in-law. I don't want to minimize that and downplay that. In this way, Ruth exhibited one of the most essential hallmarks of those who trust in God. What I'm saying is this. If I don't believe there is a God, if I believe that we are nothing more than material beings and this life is all that there is, the natural instinct is one of self-preservation. It's to work the angles in our favor. It's to use people to our own advantage. That's just life as usual, isn't it? Is I'm going to get my piece of the pie before everyone takes theirs. But this is what we can learn about Ruth's faith. But when we truly believe God's promise to take care of us, we are free to be generous and giving toward others. That's the truth. In order to live a kingdom life of generosity and sacrifice that Ruth displayed, it's not about having good morals, being brought up in a good family. It's not about good character. It's about faith. Because God has made promises to me I don't have to fight to get my happiness and secure it for myself. I can actually be lavish in my giving toward others. It's like Abraham and Lot when they stood at that promised land, right? God made a promise to Abraham 
I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And so he could tell Lot, take whatever you want. You know, you choose first, and I'll take what's left over. He could be sacrificial and generous like that because he knew the promise of God to him. You know, one of our summer community groups is going through this book by Orper called All the Places to Go, How Will You Know? And through it, they're exploring the dynamics that affect our decision-making process. And in the book, Orberg writes between the contra- a contrast between this kind of faithless selfishness that tends to characterize so much of our living and a faith-filled generosity and service toward others. Orberg writes, what's your problem? He doesn't mean it like, what's your problem, man? He says, what's your problem? In a very important way, you will be defined by your problem. You'll be defined by your biggest problem. You can choose if you want to devote your life to the problem of how can I be rich or how can I be successful or how can I be healthy or how can I be secure or you can devote yourself to a nobler problem. Your identity is defined by the problem you embrace. Tell me what your problem is and I'll tell you who you are. People with small souls have small problems. How to make their lives safer or more convenient. How to put an irritating neighbor in his or her place. How to make wrinkles less visible. How to cope with cranky coworkers or lack of recognition. Small people are occupied by small problems. People who live with largeness of soul are occupied by large problems. How to end extreme poverty how to stop sex trafficking, how to help at-risk children receive a great education. You need a God-sized problem. If you don't have one, your current problem is that you don't have a problem. Life is facing and solving problems. It's a thought-provoking question, isn't it? What is your problem? In other words, what is the problem that you're trying to solve in your life? that essentially is defining your life? What are the questions that you're trying to find answers to? The distinction that Orberg is trying to make is not one of merely scope or size. It's about the underlying motives that drive the problems we're trying to solve in our life. Are your problems defined by your fears, your selfish agenda? Or are they defined by faith, by God's purposes for your life? In other words, what I'm saying is this. You can become a multimillionaire. You can become a household name, famous in our generation. But if your problem is defined by your hunger for your own glory, in God's perspective, He says your problem is puny, it's minuscule, it's insignificant. On the other hand, from the world's perspective, Ruth's decision to faithfully support her mother-in-law in her bereavement after her husband died, and the truth is she really has no more obligation to her, that barely seems worth mentioning. That seems, in the worldly perspective, a small problem. It's like a forgettable footnote to a tragic family that doesn't even matter in history. But as we'll see at the end of this book, 
because of what God is going to do with Ruth's decision to love Naomi. It is going to be one of the most epic decisions made in human history. That's the incredible thing. Ruth's seemingly insignificant decision to stick by her mother-in-law will prove to be one of the most important decisions made in human history. Dean Ulrich once again says this, How then should God's people live where God has put them? People who put their faith in Yahweh respond to their circumstances not with self-centered strategies for coping, but with obedience and trust that sometimes defies conventional thinking. If God is active in history, daring to entrust one's well-being and future into his care becomes the sensible course to take. To try to direct our own lives according to conventional worldly wisdom will always come up short in the face of so many unforeseen and unmanageable variables. Jesus calls us to seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6.33. That means in part seeing our circumstances as divine appointments to serve Jesus Christ. Rarely do we know how our service will turn out. Certainly, Ruth did not. Ruth never got to see the full story, this side of heaven. But as we'll see by the end of the story, the impact that her decision makes is unbelievable. Let's pray. I want to invite you to reflect on this story of Ruth as we've seen it up to chapter 1. Because it's largely a story that's defined by tragedy. And it's very easy to pity a family like this and it's very easy to fall back to the impoverished theology of Naomi. God is against me. The world has turned on me. Life is broken. And so I'm going to do whatever I can do to find some modicum of happiness in this broken life. I'm going to fight and scratch and claw. And I'm going to be very pragmatic and try to make some happiness. If life, you know, that's the wisdom of the world, right? If life serves you lemons, make lemonade. What horrible wisdom is that, right? At some level. Because it's just thinking too small in God's perspective. What a perspective of faith, the perspective of Ruth is, is this. Even in my pain, even in my suffering, I believe in a God that loves me. And yes, I probably have done plenty to deserve this. If I try to unpack all the ways in which we can blame, I think probably the truth is I could beat myself over the head with all the mistakes I've made and poor choices I've made in my life. But I believe in a God that is gracious and merciful and loving. And I believe in his promises to me. And because I believe in that, that I am in the good hands of my good God, I am set free to love others generously and live for kingdom dreams like Ruth did. 
I wonder who are the people in your life that God wants to love through you. But maybe you're so blinded by your own self-pity and pain that you're really not in a position to be used by God for His purposes. And what you need is not to buck up and try harder, but what you need is more faith to believe in the goodness of God and to know that He loves you. And out of that faith, to live the courageous life of generosity and love toward others because he wants to use you in that way like he used Ruth. We're about to come to this Lord's table in just a minute. We'll sing one song before we do. But this table represents God's promise to us. I am the bread of life. I will provide for you. So let's rise at this time and we're going to sing the song of response with the worship team as we prepare ourselves to come to this Lord's table.